The following is brought to you with no commercial interruptions. Listen now. With no code too. I mean, that's sort of like the difficult Pearl Jam right. album, just with all their weird s- stuff in it too, but not as weird as, you know, Stupid Mop or uh, Bugs or anything like that from Vitology. Which I was going to say, have have you had, I know you're, you're, you're going to be doing Vitology. Have you had people sign up for those songs? Because Stupid Mop is... is um... Stupid Mops a chore. I'll, I'll, <laughs> that, that's that's a tough song to get through. Oh no, yeah, I've um, been releasing Vitology. There's only like a couple of songs left. I have to uh, to fill in for it, but I'm pretty close to being done with it. I've been releasing them, and I'm just cool. getting no code, getting a head start on that to uh, try to uh, make sure I have a buffer and can get all the songs covered sure. and stuff before uh, they start coming out and everything. Yeah, Bugs at least has the advantage of being really short. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid Mop is is definitely feels like the the um the last song endurance test that some bands like to do. Where it's like, okay, you've enjoyed the whole album, now we're gonna make you suffer about for about ten minutes. So it's trying to uh just the last mile of the uh of the marathon. Exactly, exactly like I'm gonna make this through, damn it. You got chafed nipples and you know <laughs> your toenails have come off, but yeah. you're like, God damn it, I'm finishing this. Wow. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 2 of the Better Band Podcast, an all-encompassing trip through the Pearl Jam catalog. I'm your host, Brandon Palomo. Each episode, my guest and I go track by track through every album, soundtrack, and single to discover why you simply can't find a better band. This is the Better Band Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon, and today my guest is Joel Bacher. Hello, Joel. Hi there. And today we are talking about the song Hail, Hail. We just got through sometimes, all soft and light, and now we blow the speakers out and just jar us in with this super hard, heavy song. But before we do that, I've got to ask you, Joel, when did you first hear of Pearl Jam? Uh, well, I'm old, so I remember <laughs> when 10 came out. Um, I should qualify, first of all, I would not necessarily qualify myself as a Pearl Jam fan, um, I'm, but I'm very aware of them, and I have a long history with them. I started, I was about uh, 12 years old in 1990, and I started playing guitar, and um, I remember at that time when I was learning guitar, every, everyone was, it was still very much the the hangover of 1980s metal. Yeah. And so there was like, there was still big hair going on when you picked up the guitar, you learned how to do things like, you know, sweet picking and two hand tapping and, and that kind of crap. <laughs> Every guitar magazine still had, you know, Eddie Van Halen on the cover. And I, I distinctly remember the seismic change that happened in 1991 when, when grunge hit and I was living in the Midwest. So I didn't really have any kind of um, cultural, understanding of where this music came from you know i wasn't hearing like uh i wasn't listening to indie rock bands or punk punk bands or alternative bands from the 80s i had no idea of the scene that was going on in uh washington already with bands like the melvins and you know then uh green river which was the the and mother love bone which were the predecessors to pearl jam all i knew was that i turned on tv and smells like teen spirit was on and I didn't really have a lot of context for understanding what I was looking at. I But of those bands, I had mostly listened to classic rock. I'd grown up listening to a lot of classic rock music. And so there was stuff that I could hang on to with Soundgarden and with Pearl Jam because they, they wore their classic rock influences on their sleeves more than Nirvana did, who, you know, were definitely... Uh, edged toward to my to my young and inexperienced ears the punkier side of things mm-hmm. it was really funny how quickly things changed from you would walk into a guitar store and hear someone playing eruption or sweet child yeah. of mine to about a month later you'd walk in and they'd be playing alive because that was it it really was like all of a sudden everyone threw out their spandex they got grunge, <laughs> they got flannel shirts and this this was the new thing and so I was very, I was very aware of it happening. I remember the the chain, I, and I remember be, being like pretty okay with the change, like recognizing, like, oh, okay, this is better. This stuff is better than the things that I had been listening to 
prior to this. Um, and I think the band that I liked the most from that period was Soundgarden because they rec- I could hear the Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath influences in Soundgarden. And that was where I was coming from was was classic rock stuff. And I kind of I was aware that that Pearl Jam was a big deal um, and they were the most they were the chart toppers yeah. of, of those bands by and large. Like a lot of songs off of 10 became hits. And then, you know, they, they started showing up all over the place. And I kind of, um, I had lost track of them and lost interest in them because I, I moved on. I was listening to a lot of different, I branched out from that, started getting into jazz, started getting into some weird psychedelic music and sort of just disconnected from anything that was happening currently. I was aware of when, of Kurt Cobain's death, obviously, as a big, you know, as a cultural point of cultural impact. But I wasn't really listening to any new music during that period of time. And um, the first time I became kind of aware of Pearl Jam again was uh, when Vetter and the Foo Fighters toured uh, with Mike Watt. They did a series of shows um, basically as Mike Watt's backing band. And I that was one of the first shows. I had just moved out to San Diego at that time. That was around like, I think, maybe 94, 95. I think 95. And um, I was really, uh, I remember distinctly really wanting to go to that show and not being able to go because I really, I liked Mike Watt. And so I was, I, I kind of made the connection in my head like, well, well, if this guy Eddie Vedder is hanging out with Mike Watt, he's probably cool. Like I, I had, I made the associative leap of, okay, there's maybe more going on with this guy than I had perhaps initially thought. Yeah. And uh, the reason I wanted to do Hail Hail for, uh, your podcast is I distinctly remember seeing them perform it on the late show with David Letterman, which is such a nineties memory to have of seeing any band performing something on the late show with David Letterman and, you know, live TV performances are such a weird artificial way of presenting music. It's like, it's a live performance, but it's really not because they're in front of cameras and um, it's this kind of artificial stilted environment. And I, I rewatched this performance right before uh, this podcast and it still holds up as one of the really great like live tv uh, rock performances where they just come up and just shred this song and vetter has a rock star swagger about him but it's not an obnoxious uh over the top ego it, it's just the ego driven yeah. thing it's just this very intense delivery of this song and uh i i was impressed like uh, even as a snotty teenager who basically hated most new music uh, and thought that the only good stuff was, you know, weird old garage bands and stuff like that. I remember thinking, okay, these guys are pretty good. And they've kept popping up. Pearl Jam has kept popping up in my life after that. My my first wife, um, Max wife, was a huge Pearl Jam fan. Uh, so I heard a ton of their stuff through her. Uh, we went to see them live because she wanted to see them live. Uh, it was a it was an arena show. So we were, you know, way off in the back. But they they were one of those bands that can fill an arena and you know have has music big enough that it translates to the back rows so you're not you don't feel like you know you're a couple of miles away from the actual concert was it in San Diego we actually lived up in Portland at the time oh okay. so it, was, it was up uh, close to their their original stomping grounds and um yeah since then uh, i i haven't kept up with them them recently but i still i have a fondness for some of the material uh, from that, from the uh, Vitology No Code period, and I don't think you can overstate how influential they were, um, just in terms of defining the sound of a lot of bands from the '90s, for better or for worse. So many singers latched on to uh, some of Vetter's mannerisms, from particularly from Ten, and then just made them kind of inescapable and annoying. Yes, <laughs> the uh, the yarling vocal style i've heard it referred to or hunger dunger dang which is my own personal favorite <laughs> variation um which he pretty much abandoned after 10 like he it, that's just kind of his voice he's a baritone um but he dropped some of those affectations uh but other people picked them up and said oh thanks we'll use these and then that just became the sound of, yeah, yeah. of a lot of singers of the 1990s few few of whom whom imbued it with the same kind of uh intensity that that he was capable of doing and if i'm not rambling too much i was thinking a lot about pearl jam this week in in preparation for this this podcast and uh what struck me about them was the 90s was 
the log line of the 90s was irony. Like the the pop culture of the 90s, particularly the mid 90s, was absolutely suffused with mm-hmm. irony. And you know, if you took anything particularly seriously, it was it was that was kind of ridiculous. Everything was to be treated at arm's length. And it's remarkable that one of the biggest bands, if not the biggest band from that period, can be defined by their earnestness. Yeah. There really is not a lot of irony in Pearl Jam. They're very they're very they're a very earnest band. The lyrics are earnest. They're a hard rock band, uh, first and foremost. And they um I guess some of that could be has occasionally been interpreted as self seriousness and people have, have made fun of, of Vetter for being maybe a little full of himself. Um but I really do think in retrospect it's just an earnest commitment to their music, which which was pretty unusual for the time. Yeah, I think there's a sort of dual side I guess all coins are dual sided as I was <laughs> going to say, but the the other side of the coin I think for the um irony I think is also authenticity is you want to try to be real and not have an artifice like the eighties, you know, rock and, you know, coming out of Reagan and stuff and big shoulder pads and clothes and all that sort of stuff is just sort of like, nah, man, everything's real. You got to be real. You got to be authentic. You can't be playing a character or anything like that. And, you know, I think that that's sort of where irony comes in with it. It's just sort of like, oh, well, I don't know if it's if it's reflected today in sort of like the um, and being quote unquote anti PC or trying to call out um, white knighting or um, um, uh, virtue signaling or something like that. Mm -hmm. Where it's sort of like you know real people don't care about other people. I guess I don't know. (laughs) Or it's it's I I don't know if it's like a swing back if 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 we're swinging back from that or something like that but i mean that's i think trying to be real i think gets some people in trouble you know so sort of like oh you know uh, i gotta be real i gotta do drugs i gotta you know be a rock star in this way but not like a super extravagant rock star i gotta be a tortured artist i guess yeah the, the search for authenticity can lead some people to self-destruction yeah i suppose um yeah, in in terms of like what you're talking about with with um, virtue signaling, uh, you know, the idea of of irony certainly has its place in terms of if you're dealing with kind of a ridiculous construct or a construct that deserves to be poked fun at, you you can uh, irony is an excellent tool because you can you can use the structure of the thing that you're making fun of and then point out all poke all the holes in it that that you need to do uh there's also the point at which being ironic becomes an excuse for being an asshole yeah and that's that's where you get the kind of people who are like the greatest sin would be to legitimately care about something and legitimately care about somebody else and that's that that's the kind of the nihilistic endpoint of a certain kind of irony where you're just you know you don't everything is is to be looked down upon and mocked i like the uh the Hullabalooza Simpson episode, I think, uh, encapsulates that <laughs> perfectly. Oh, the, like, yeah, are you being Are you being ironic? I don't even know anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, here comes that cannonball guy. He's cool. Are you being sarcastic, dude? I don't even know anymore. Um. So I think I think we can get into the song now. Then, um, this was the second song and second single from the aforementioned No Code. It was released as a single sometime in 96-ish. There's not an official date on it. It was a, an import-only CD. The 45 uh, vinyl single didn't come out until 2016. Uh, the B-side, of course, was Black, Red, Yellow. And um, the main songwriters on it were Stone Gosser, Jeff Ahmed, Mike McCready, and Eddie Vedder. It was pretty much, I guess, a song written in between drummers, I guess. Um, they first played it live at the Showbox show in 96 after the record came out where they debuted a bunch of the live songs. The uh, version that's on Live on Two Legs was recorded live at the 1998 Sacramento show. And I was at that show, so okay, that cool. was pretty cool that I found that out. I, I've heard the yeah. li- that the Live on Two Legs was was a personal favorite of, of my 
my ex. And so I've heard that. I probably have heard that version more times than the actual version on no code. I think albums, they sort of treat them as the, uh, as the research and then going to see them live and like all the bootlegs and stuff is the, uh, is the test is where it's kind of like, okay, you've studied and now here we go. Here's, here's the real thing. Are you guys ready for it? Well, that's like, I know, um, I mentioned Mike Watt previously. I, I know in the Minutemen, he referred to the, um, the, the albums, the albums were flyers for the shows. Oh yeah. Yeah. The song, at least lyrically, it seems, I don't know. It seems, does it seem kind of, uh, pessimistic to you or does it seem sort of, uh, I don't know, not really the happiest song, right? No, I had, um, in the past I had not looked at the lyrics and, um, by Vedder's standards, he's fairly intelligible on this song. Mm-hmm. Although in some lines, it does uh, slip into his um, mumbling, uh, some some of his kind of mumbly um, delivery. Which which I hasten to add that I, I I have no problem. I mean, I'm a fan of early REM. I like mumbling. I have no, <laughs> I've got no problems with mumbling. But I don't think I'd ever really sat down with the lyrics and tried to pay attention to what he was saying. I had I'd gotten the Hail, hail, the lucky ones. I refer to those in love. So I presumed, oh, okay, this is a love song. And it doesn't really seem to be, based on looking over the the lyrics, it seems to be a song about um, kind of a troubled relationship. And it's, I don't know, I mean, there, there's aspects of it that make it sound like it is a romantic uh, relationship, but you could you could also read, there's parts of it that could be read more along the lines of just a really troubled friendship. Or uh, I, I had a professor once, um, who used to insist that every song that a rock band does is really about being in a band. And this is one of those, um, one of those guys who like, there are certain people who have like the single theory for everything. And that never pans out. Like the idea that you can boil everything down to like, everything is this is ridiculously reductionist. But I do, I find it amusing to apply that to, to different songs. And you could look at this, I gather from looking over some of the stuff about the album, that the guys in the band were at each other's throats a little bit while they were, they were recording this one. And so some of the lines in Hail Hail could be read as a message to the rest of the band about, are we going to keep this up? Is this, you know, this is where we're at. Are we, how do we feel yeah. about this? It's uh it's a, let's have a talk about our relationship in musical form. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. Cause uh, there's struggle here. There's band members not knowing what's going on when they're recording the album and kind of being left out and coming back being like, Hey, what the hell? And people writing stuff apart and trying to come together and Eddie coming in with all these songs. It does kind of seem like, it could uh it could have a reference to that too yeah it's kind of is the room for both of us both of us apart the uh are we all going to go solo now um one of the th- this song is one of the songs in the album where uh the lyrics are written and it's included in all the different sets in no code the polaroids in there the c o d and e versions uh, it's either a guy falling, I guess, or a uh, somebody who's trying to hold on, trying to grab something who's uh, in the water. So I guess those kind oh, yeah, of... Oh, I'm looking at the picture right now. It looks like maybe somebody drowning, reaching for a lifeline. Yeah. Also, really digging the old school... Uh, I'm looking at, I think, the single cover. Um, we've got some very old school punk rock. We've cut letters out like that we type from a typewriter and pasted them on there. Uh, I am yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely a sucker for that style of design. I'm not going to lie to you. Oh, no. I mean, that was, we grew up in the 90s, right? So, I mean, yep. that sort of it's zine aesthetic is, and we're pre, pre-programmed for that. You take one look at it, you'd be like, this is probably pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever learn to play any uh, Pearl Jam songs when you were playing guitar, or do you still play guitar? Uh, I, I tool around a little bit. Um, calling it playing is really grandiose i i can make noises come out of a guitar oh okay <laughs> i i think i learned the main riff to alive um because i think if you were playing guitar in 1991 it was like required uh, you you had you had to learn that it smells like teen spirit like mm-hmm. you had to be able to play those two those two riffs so i can play the opening to alive um uh, but just the opening i don't think i can play any of the rest and uh, i think that's about it i was i was listening i i love the opening <laughs> Thank you. 
this song to Hail Hail. The it's um, it never quite ends when you think it's going to end. Like it's I was listening to see, you know, is this an unusual time signature or is this an unusual set of chords? And it's really not. It's just four four. Um, I think it goes around just in a cycle of, of eight chords. There are probably some repeating in there. Mm-hmm. I haven't like actually tried to figure it out. But the riff always goes on for like maybe a bar longer than I think it's going to. There's something ever so slightly off kilter about it that I really like. Were you in bands or just kind of just learning, just picking up the guitar, just play a little bit as a hobby? Screwing around the house. Just screwing around the house. I, I've I've played with a couple of people here in San Diego just around, but I, I've never really been part of a quote-unquote band. I've, I've played with a couple of guys doing like open mic nights mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I've never been good enough to, to really... Um, follow through with that kind of thing it's just a just a hobby and it certainly kept me occupied in my my teen years uh growing up in the midwest i did not have a lot of friends it was a pretty small town and so i just spent hours and hours screwing around on the guitar and watching mtv which was my primary source of it, it was it's funny looking back the kind of um slanted point of view of what was happening in music that i got because the weirdest stuff that you would see would probably be on 120 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I was very much more of a headbanger's ball kind of kid. I, I was definitely more into metal in the early 90s than any kind of alternative rock. Thankfully, that kind of shifted over the years, although I still have an affection for some some genres of metal. But, you know, I, I think that all I really knew about alternative music would be stuff that I would pick up from that and from guitar magazines. Like as far as I was concerned, I think the the most alternative band that existed was maybe dinosaur junior. That (laughs) that was as wild and crazy as it got for me. Like, uh, Ooh, these, this must be this, I guess this is alternative rock. I guess this is what it is. And it's, you know, obviously missing vast sections of context and the other and other bands that I still feel like I'm getting caught up on. Like all these years later, I'm, I'm 40 years old now. And all these years later, I'll still hear about some group from the 80s or from the 70s, and I'll listen to them, and I'll be like, why the hell have I not been listening to this this entire time? Yeah, yeah. Why did I never hear of these guys until now? Yeah, so. I have spent the uh, last year or two getting uh, into My Bloody Valentine a lot more. Oh, there's some good stuff there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Loveless is a great album. Going through the lyrics, it seems like, uh, to to me, it, it always sort of hit me because as a as a... As a young kid, I was always sort of like having crushes on girls and stuff and not talking to them and just being sort of, oh, it's a puppy love, lovesick, sort of, oh, I can't talk to girls, I'm too shy, blah, blah, blah. I know so, the feeling. Yeah, so like the hail, hail, the lucky ones, I refer to those in love, always sort of stuck with me and, you know, that was, the, oh, he's speaking to me, man, <laughs> part of it, even though this, this, uh, Album came out when actually I, I had a girlfriend in high school at the at that point, so it was kind of weird. I, I I I don't know. Was just sort of like, oh, I remember back when I felt that way, and you know, now I don't really feel that way because I have a girlfriend, and I don't know. Even even you know nowadays that all that stuff is in the past and been married for a while, and sort of like, oh, I could still feel those young just pangs of, of, of loneliness and, and, uh, longing. And it's, it's, it's a weird sort of nostalgia, but it's kind of like, ah, that's not really who I am anymore. Even though that's sort of the, the foundation that I've built myself up upon, I guess. I don't know. Isn't it kind of funny? And I've noticed this recently too, and it's probably just a symptom of getting older of feeling nostalgic for periods of time that, you know, in retrospect sucked when you were actually there. Yeah. There's, a, there's a sense of like, cause I was, um, I, 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 um, I am, uh, married to get happily married and have a stepdaughter. And, uh, I was driving around with my stepdaughter the other day and she likes to play around with the radio and Seether by Veruca Salt came on. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, leave it on this. I, I remember the song. I like this song. And she, she said something like, what do you like about this song? And I was like, well, it's, you know, Kind of reminds me of my teen years. I remember, you know, this band was kind of a one-hit wonder, but I liked this period of time. I liked this sound. You know, it reminds me of my teen years. I'm I'm enjoying it. And she kind of pauses for a beat, and then she says, but you hated your teen years. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're right. I did. I really hated being a teenager. It sucked. It was a terrible period of time in my life. But there is some weirdness where you hear something that remind that can take you back, that can transport you to a different period. and 
sometimes it is too painful. Like there, there are things that when I was getting divorced, there were certain albums that I listened to repeatedly that I killed. Like I cannot listen to those records anymore because mm-hmm. the moment you hear it, it's like, oh, uh, here we go. But there are some things where I guess that the sting has um has fa- has passed enough that we that we can listen to it and you get a little bit of that there there's a, a sad sweetness to nostalgia uh in all forms and so hearing something that's like oh man i remember this one that girl she broke my heart that this is something that um you know for guys who are pop music obsessives i think the movie high fidelity really does nail really well just the the sense that we soundtrack our lives and our heartbreaks with with pop music as as twisted yeah, as yeah. that may be yeah sa- sad sweetness there's got to be a french or german word for that right i mean that's uh you would think or... you would think that seems like something that the french would have nailed down by now they're they're really yeah. good at they're really good at um i think nostalgia literally translates to something like pain of remembrance yeah yeah something or like something that. like that so um, I think it's a greek i believe maybe i'm wrong that, or that, that that's right. just no i think that's what right. somebody in a podcast i was listening to said Hey, it might have been the flop house. It that I heard of. Yeah, it might have been. Actually, I have my iPad here. I'm going to look it up just because to to forestall any possible tweets <laughs> on the subject. Oh, it's uh, for, yes, from Greek nostos, return home, uh, to plus algos pain. So the pain of returning home. Ah, yes. A lot of '90s music that I liked brings out brings with it some tinge of that that the pain of returning home because that's. You know the years that were your your formative years, and I was alive in the '80s, but I don't remember a ton of them. Like I was, uh, I was 11 years old in 1989. Yeah. So strike that, 10 years old. And so you know, years before that tend to be kind of a blur. So the '80s is not. I remember some of the '80s, but I really remember the '90s. There was He-Man and Transformers, and you know, yep. Oh yeah, I watched <laughs> the hell out of He-Man. Oh yeah. Um, the it's it, it could be like a sort of. I don't know, either a masochistic sort of, oh, I'll feel this little bit of pain to remind me I'm still alive or something, or just to be like, oh, yeah, I'll take this little pinprick. And, you know, it's kind of like, oh, it's it's not as near as bad as, as what it used to be or something. Or maybe it's a, uh, you know, you're just like, oh, yes, that reminds me when I had wasn't as close to dying <laughs> as I am now, sure. as I will be because of the inevitable march of time the inevitable march of time yeah the the push forward no yeah nostalgia is a weird impulse it's a weird feeling um it's a very it's something there's something deeply human about it it's music music and smell i think bring you back to a particular time more than almost anything else and particular places uh, whether those places have anything to do with the music or not. Like when I first, I moved up to Portland in the late nineties, early two thousands and lived there for about four years. And I just, I remember I listened repeatedly to um, the second meat puppets album. And just it, the moment I hear the opening notes on that album, I can suddenly mm-hmm. like smell what the air in Portland smells like. And remember the, you know, the, the dampness on my shirt as I'm walking down the street. And it's of course raining because it's Portland. And just the cert, certain music just in, instantly transports you back to when you were listening to it. It's a part of the uh, our brains that uh, don't need our <laughs> damn dog. I know people are home. Hi, doggy. <laughs> Hi, doggy. Not to derail it, but um, to kind of spin off of the idea of nostalgia. One, another thing that's, I think, noteworthy about Pearl Jam is their longevity. Um, they are playing here in San Diego, like within a couple of months. And there aren't a lot of bands from that era that are still making music and somewhat more morbidly still have all members alive. Like the, the, um, the attrition rate of, of groups that were popular in the early nineties is, is pretty sad. We've, we've seen a lot of, I mean, obviously Cobain was the, is the, the big name, but so many of the, the musicians from that, that period, you know, uh, Chris Cornell just died a couple of years ago. The lead singer for Alice in Chains, whose name is escaping me at the moment, which Lane Staley. Thank you. Could not think of it. Shannon Hoon from, uh, Shannon Hoon, yeah. uh, Blind Melon, uh, Scott, Scott Wieland, um, which I have to say on the topic of influence, um, I remember hearing because Stone Temple Pilots broke 
in Michigan anyway, and we always got things a little bit late, broke roughly the same time as Pearl Jam, like slightly after 10, I think. And I remember hearing Whelan's voice and just being astonished at how blatantly it felt like a copy of Vedder's vocal style. And I know that's been a, a point of argument over the years as to who started first and if it was indeed if he was indeed biting on someone else's style or if they just simply you know it was a parallel evolution of these these singing styles but i first heard not the first uh now i'm gonna have to look it up because i don't want to get the name wrong Uh, it was whatever the second big stone temple pilots single was and i was like oh pearl jam has a new song yeah that's exactly what i thought too and then being absolutely gobsmacked when the DJ said, that was Stone Temple Pilots. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. That is the single biggest cop of another vocalist style I've ever heard. Yeah, I think I, I think I saw the video for one of their first songs or something like that. And uh, uh, see Scott Weiland is like, oh, Eddie cut his hair and dyed it. Oh, okay. That's, that's kind of weird. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out which was the... I think it might have been Plush was the one I heard. Because Sex Type Thing was the first one that I heard. And... I, I didn't get the same sense of like uh, maybe because I hadn't per- heard Pearl Jam as much. I didn't feel like, oh, this is such a direct ripoff. But I remember hearing Plush and just being astonished at, that it was not Pearl Jam. And then, of course, um, so many bands took that in- distinctive vocal style and kind of ran with it to the point where it became the there, there's a whole I was just reading before we, we started recording the podcast. I think it's the TV Tropes website, which is um, I have a love-hate relationship with. It has a whole list of, of different bands that have have uh, could debatably be construed as working within that, using that vocal style. The most egregious probably being the lead singer for Creed. Yeah. And uh, if you're of an age, if you're listening to this, and if you're of an age where you remember Creed, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, that was a bad time. Late 90s, early 2000s was a, a really dire time in rock music in a lot of ways. And they were they were pretty... If you, uh, Now, I should, say, I should also say, Brandon, I don't know you that well. If you're a Creed fan, I apologize. <laughs> uh, no, that's, that's pretty safe. Okay, that's, right, uh, yeah. I, 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 I like to make fun of his singing. That's the only thing that I like. But uh, Okay, I just thought I'd better cover my bases just in case you, you, you nursed a secret love of Creed. Uh, or no, not no, a secret right. love of Creed. I mean, you know, people have their own... You know, not not to hate on someone's musical taste or musical style, but I just I remember hearing them for the first time and just being like, "So this is where we're at now, huh?" <laughs> like, ah, it's come to this. Yeah, it, the, we have descended down to this level. That was that was in the the depths of the uh, the new metal uh, early two thousands, mm-hmm. which for some reason I I was listening to a lot of just regular radio at that time. This was pre-iPods or satellite radio or anything like that. And so I just remember hearing a ton of that music and a ton of those bands and just hating all of it, but for some reason, never making the connection in my head. You know, you can just turn the radio off. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, just settle into the the identity that you will inevitably fall into of middle-aged white liberal and just start listening to NPR. <laughs> It's sort of like now, it's like, ah, I hate uh, Facebook, I hate Twitter, but oh, I can't get away from it. I got to stay on. Got to scroll, see what's happening. Yep. Got to see what I missed. Is there, um, are there, are there parts of the song that, that particularly stick out to you or are there things, turns of phrase or anything like that, that, uh, that you think are. I I mentioned, I, I really like the chord structure. I like the chord structure of the main riff, um, because it does feel complicated isn't the right word it's just i i like when something will zig when i expect it to zag yeah that first that first change does seem like a little like it's going like a like a a half step higher or something than it should yeah and like it cuts in like a bar either before or after you think it's going to there it it doesn't um I know Frank Black from the Pixies, or Black Francis, or whatever he's calling himself nowadays, has said that one of his MOs in writing a song is to do like three where someone would expect you to do four. So it keeps everyone mm-hmm. a little bit off balance. And Yeah, I think it, it starts on the end of four, I believe, just kind of tapping it out in my in my head right now, which I think is part of the why it seems a little, I think, off. That makes sense. That's like the opening to... Um, Rock and to take it back to classic rock, the opening to "Rock and Roll" by Led Zeppelin, which I still have not figured out mm-hmm. what beat they're actually starting on. Because when the guitar kicks in, it always throws me. It always feels like, wait, no, that's not where. Oh, oh yeah, I guess okay, that is where he intended to start. Yeah, like it feels like a false start, but then 
to it just goes from there. And this has a little bit of that same. And then when they just dig into the um, the kind of re- repeated thump of the verses, you know, it settles down into that uh, that pretty quintessential like two or three chord rock verses. And but then back into the slightly more expansive uh, chord progression when it gets when it gets to the chorus. And I mean, Vetter really sings the shit out of this song. Like he really is. He had started singing. I think now I'm not as as uh, versed in their music as you are, but it it seemed like around Vitology he started singing in a slightly higher register, and with like a, a maybe a little bit, little bit less of the kind of uh, well the yarling basically of, of the of the early stuff, um, a little bit more direct and intense vocal style, and that's really in um, in evidence in this. In the song, and particularly in that uh, that live version from the Late Show that I mentioned, he he uh, he's really ripping it up. And I'm always impressed when a band can pull off a, a good live TV performance because it is such a weird a weird thing. Like normally, it feels stilted. Even really good bands can come off awkward in that kind of setting. You know, there's there's maybe two or three that are just really phenomenal performances and some of them are just phenomenal for how much of a shit show they become <laughs> like like fear on saturday night live where they just completely completely lay waste to the show for you know their period of time i, th- I think the the vocal change i think is is probably a result of of just how big they got and how you know much you're playing live because i think like studio you're playing smaller kind of being in that lower register is i don't know about easier but you can it stands out more, I think, on a record than when you're, as opposed to playing live and stuff like that, where it it takes a whole lot, a whole lot more breath to be able to to sustain that. Mm-hmm. And I think you're just playing live. You're in front of a bunch of people. You want to be louder, so your voice kind of naturally pitches up a little bit more. So I think it's probably yeah, that, from that. That's an interesting point. I, I've never really, I haven't done much singing um, in front of people, which I, they're all grateful for because. <laughs> My singing voice is nothing to write home about, believe me. But but your um, speaking voice. Well, I'm, I'm doing my I'm doing my professional podcaster voice for this uh, my stentorian baritone. Oh yes. But I, I've often wondered. I mentioned REM earlier, and the first three REM albums, Michael Stipe is singing in a noticeably lower register than he would sing later on. Mm-hmm. Like uh, his a baritone that occasionally dips down into like this kind of deep southern bass and. I always wondered, like, why did he stop singing like that? Why did he he adopt the, you know, part of it is maybe just to show off his range that he can sing, can hit higher mm-hmm. notes. But if you listen to the sing to the singer he became on Automatic for the People, you know, he sounds like a different guy than he sounds on um, Murmur or uh, Fables of the Reconstruction. Yeah, which is you know, um, it's a matter of personal preference. I like the automatic for the people is an unimpeachable album i i prefer the lower register stuff i fables of the reconstruction is probably my favorite rem album it's not their best but it's probably my favorite but i i have always wondered and that makes a lot of sense that because yeah they toured like like pearl jam they became like kind of a live powerhouse they toured the hell out of out of the world and yeah if it does take more if it takes more oomph to push out those lower notes, eventually he's pr- he is probably going to just out of survival, going to be like, yeah, I need to I need to uh, restrain it a little bit and start start singing in a way that projects without blowing up my vocal cords every night. One of the things uh, that sticks out to me, one of the weird sort of lyrics, it's egg rolling thick and heavy. that's say about like an egg roll and so that's one where i genuinely did not have any idea what he was saying like i oh, didn't yeah. know that, that was the line <laughs> until i looked at it earlier yeah today. it's egg rolling thick and heavy along i i hear along the past you carry but they're gonna say all the past you carry which kind of I, I think mumbling sort of i think promotes a sort of oh hey what's it mean to you what's the subliminal thing you get in your own head right. is it this lyric or this lyric Oh, what's it really mean to you then? Because, you know, what would you, from whatever words pop into your head when he's mumbling? Yeah, 
Egg rolling thick and heavy sounds like one of those phrases that you come up with when you actually don't know the words and you're just singing whatever random bullshit comes <laughs> into your head along with a song because it, it that is that is an odd line. There's a Bowie song from uh, Ziggy Stardust, um, Moon Age Daydream, and I've never looked up the lyrics to it, but I've listened to Ziggy Stardust like a billion times. And there's a moment in that song where it sounds like he's saying, "I'm smoking mm-hmm. like a big monkey bird." I've never looked it up because I don't want to know what he's actually saying because it would disappoint <laughs> me compared to I'm smoking like a big monkey bird because that's I, I derive a lot of pleasure from that even though I know damn well that's not what he's actually saying. I'm writing that down. I'm going to look that up now. <laughs> um, yeah, because I, I, an egg roll can you know kind of have a, th- a thick wrapper around it or something like that when it's fried and stuff or it's referencing in the uh, like an Easter egg roll, which... Uh... Which is a very wholesome kind of thing to be referencing i'm now looking up um what does i looked up uh egg rolling and one of the first people also ask what does rolling easter eggs symbolize yeah they may possibly rolling the rock away from jesus's uh grave yep, right exactly yeah this may have become symbolic of the rolling away of the rock from jesus christ's tomb so i never i never read a religious interpretation into these lyrics but it, it's possible that that's something that he's that he's playing on egg rolling Thick and he- thick and heavy. That implies, man, that must be a hell of an egg. Well, it may be possibly also like a, a Rolling Stone gathers no moss or something like that. Yeah, but the, you know, also if you're rolling a snowball or whatever, and it's picking up the debris around. Well, I guess the other snow, not debris, but you know, getting getting bigger and bigger. So it's sort of as it as it moves, it's it's getting larger and picking up more uh, more along with it. Actually, now that now that I'm looking at the lyrics directly, it's it's egg roll and thick and heavy. All the past we carry, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then yeah, that that does that makes sense. People, you know, when you are speaking with someone that you've known for a long time, a partner or an old friend, everything becomes imbued with all of the experiences that you've had together, good or bad. And so it's never just. You know, the kind of arguments that couples will have after they've been together for 10 years where someone says, hey, can you hand me a spoon? And suddenly they're screaming at each other. And it's it's, it's never just because someone said, hey, can you hand me a spoon? It's because, yeah. well, you said this, but then, you know, five years ago you said that, this, that, and the other thing. And then it it, it becomes this accumulation of uh, of grievances. Yeah. A lot of the, uh, the reads I think that people have on this is sort of a, a couple being at a, at a place where it's either falling apart or kind of taking a look at the relationship and being like, you know, it's kind of old hat. It's never, are we really still in love anymore? It's kind of just like the day in day out life is just life and it's not the same that it used to be. And it's, there's no spark or anything like that anymore. Yeah. I'm looking at the lyrics right now. The line, are we bound out of obligation? Is that all we've got? Yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah, that's pretty hard. <laughs> that, that's, that's a rough. That's a rough. Um, that would be a rough thing to hear in couples therapy. Mm-hmm. That 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 feels like a very like cold and brutal appraisal of of a relationship that has is uh, at a crossroads at the very least. Yeah, and then also like a couple lyrics after that. I don't want to think. I want to feel. Yep. You know, it's like oh, I want to. I want to feel that feeling again. You know, I don't want to think about. I don't know anything. It's just sort of of the rush of of emotion is stronger than you know any sort of logic or you know oh we got to be pragmatic about stuff. I, from the first time I heard this song, I remember being struck by that the next line is "How do I feel?" and "How do I?" and that it's an incomplete sentence. He doesn't finish that thought. I, I've I've always liked that that he leaves that you know you can you can he's trailing off and you can read wherever you think that that particular train of thought might be going. Yeah. And usually live, he just says fucking how do I? Oh yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. Which, which really underlies the kind of uh, frustration, the and... frustration. This feels like just looking at the lyrics, this feels like maybe the culmination of a conversation that's been going on since like nine o'clock to about four in the morning. There's a little bit of like you've been sitting around arguing mm-hmm. with someone smoking cigarettes for a ridiculously long period of time until you were just finally getting at this like, all right, what, where the hell do we go from here? Kind of, uh, kind of exhaustion. Perhaps, I'm, perhaps I'm reading too much of my own personal experience into this. But. 
tales from Joel's real life. <laughs> Pretty much, uh, you know, that's 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 all life is is trying to fit it into the con. You know, everything you see and experience through the the context of of your past and uh, all, all of the vignettes that have been placed around the uh, the room in your head, your your memory palace. You know, just every everything all the lights bouncing off of everything, the kaleidoscope and just sort of, Oh yeah, that reminds me of this. That reminds me of this. That reminds me of this. It's like, eh, it's not that at all. It's like, Oh, but that's how I see it. And you know, then training your brain to try to recontextualize stuff and be like, okay, that's not the right way to do it. You gotta, you gotta be an adult. You gotta be a grown up. You gotta, you know, fix that so that you can be better. If, if you need that kind of <laughs> stuff. As a good, as a good friend of mine puts it, uh, it takes so long to become not stupid. Oh yeah, and that's I, I think that there's 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 some of the uh, the lived experience of trying to become not stupid in the the lyrics of this song. I I, I do want to toss out also. I really like the line "bandaged hand in hand." Sometimes Kind of reminds me of, um, and uh, this is a song that, was, that came much later, but um, a song called No Children by the Mountain Goats, uh, which is uh, maybe the saddest, bitterest relationship song that's ever been written. It, it's just this absolutely savage uh, deconstruction of a toxic relationship. But he has a line in there, something like, um, I am drowning, there is no sign of land, you are coming down with me, hand in unlovable hand. <laughs> which is uh, Vetter's version has more hope than that <laughs> their, their hands are bandaged but there is still a chant you know are you woman enough to be my man which is another kind of kind of good line I don't think it's a hopeless song I think it's a, a an exhausted and tired and lived in song but I don't get the feeling it necessarily means we're done I get the feeling that it's a, yeah, sort of an assessment this is a step in the relationship and so where's the next step you know where it's uh you know you, like bandaged hand in hand you said it could also reference like a hand fasting sort of marriage ceremony sort of thing is how i uh oh i hadn't thought of that i see that's it. interesting and that's because that's that's what my wife and i did so <laughs> so the, oh, that's so cool that's really cool that is not an interpretation i ever would have thought of but that actually does does make a lot of sense and and gives a different it's that's cool that those those lines because my first thought was you know a bandaged hand from basically punching the wall or something like yeah, that yeah. or you know <laughs> a, a bandaged hand from an, from injury there's an entirely different interpretation of bandage there that's cool and possibly too like at the uh at the end too uh on a run in a race that can't be won sort of you know love isn't a competition there isn't a winner or a loser it's you know right it's a team sport you you know you go through and you're not competing you're not trying to get points on one another you're not trying to be like okay if you do the dishes then i'll do the laundry and then if you do take out the trash on this day then i'll go ahead and make dinner this day it's just sort of you know you're all in it you're all together you're there for a reason and uh whatever that reason is you figure it out yourselves and it's you know exactly it, not to get not to get too too deep or too down but it took me way too long to realize that if you go into a argument with someone that you care about with the thought i want to win this argument you've already lost yeah Oh, we, 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 we get deep, we get down and we <laughs> in it on this thing. Well, again, I mean, I, it's, it's, I it's, think it's, that speaks again to the earnestness of, of Pearl Jam, mm -hmm. that they're not a band that hides these, ha hides more raw emotion behind, uh, you know, layers of, of irony. There's, there's still enough of the, the punk kid in these guys who, you know, was probably was listening to like Rites of Spring or whatever back in the eighties that they are wearing, they are wearing their hearts on their sleeves, which, um, in the 90s marked them as as very different and probably is a big part of their 
their longevity, that there's that there is a very direct communication of some fairly raw feeling. Yeah, it's uh, when you're when you're young, all those nerves are are raw, and you know the slightest sort of bump triggers off a, a you know a burning reaction, and so you know when you have these things, this music or you know film or something like that, that this this art around the world that kind of taps into that and you're just kind of like oh yeah you you really uh don't feel as alone and it also helps you to helps you to figure out how to cope with it all there's a great kids in the hall sketch where it's uh this uh kid is like i think he's been sent to his room by his parents or something like that and he's really angry so he starts to write a poem about it and everything everything that he does it like comes up in a little newspaper headline Afterwards, like, you know, teen vows to turn pain into poetry, you know, on the on the newspaper. And then it's like he plays some rudimentary guitar riff and sings his poem over. And it's like teen vows to set poem to music. It's like everything when you're that age is huge and important. And every emotion you feel is the emotion that yeah. you know, no one has ever felt before. And it's bigger and raw and nastier than anything else. And we we are just creatures of self-importance at that age. And then you get older and the world beats you down and <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta worry about your job and showing up on time. <laughs> well, and the just the some of the hopefully for some people, not for not for all of them, obviously, but for some of us, the myopia starts to to fade a little bit and you start to oh, yeah, develop yeah. a little bit more of a like like you were talking about, um actually caring about other people and realizing, oh yeah, they have emotions too, and they're just as valid as mine. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's not everyone gets there, and uh, I have to remind myself of it on occasion. I'm far from perfect, but in theory, that's what we're moving towards. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. yeah some Fingers days, crossed. Some days, some days more hopefully than others. Yeah, that's why it's, you know, I uh, don't, we got to turn off Facebook and the news and stuff every once in a while. I, I've tapped out on the news, man. I, I not, not to... I'm not going to derail the podcast in any kind of political conversation, but I, at a certain <laughs> point, I, I realized like, you know, if there's an asteroid heading toward the earth, I'm probably going to find out about it from a notice on my iPhone. <laughs> so I'm just going to, I'll tune in for as much as I can stand and I will, you know, be as invested as I can in, in things that might actually make some kind of small difference. But like my wife is a total news junkie and mm-hmm. watch CNN 24 7 and keeps up on everything that's going on and i admire her for it i mean that's and she manages to not get incredibly depressed by it which is which is where she and i differ that's <laughs> i will watch like a half hour of it and i'm like all right i'm out i gotta go do something else and i realize i'm speaking from a position of enormous privilege in being able to say that because there's a lot of people who cannot ignore what's going on mm-hmm. but that that's my my one one of my tricks to to keep myself the semblance of saying that I am is occasionally just tapping out and going, Hey, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to go uh, watch a stupid movie or something. I, I can't. Oh, yeah. this. See, do you think we uh, got it all from the song? Is there anything else you, you uh, think you got there? Uh, the only thing I, uh, I, the um, collection of influences that makes up bands from this era and, and pro it's an interesting mix of, you know, there's obviously a certain amount derived from, from the punk bands and college rock bands of the eighties. And then this, um, strong influence of classic rock. Uh, a lot of the classic stuff I think comes in in Mike McCready's guitar playing it, the fairly obvious Jimi Hendrix influence. And I was just reading about him before we started talking. And I guess that, mm-hmm. uh, he was pretty heavily influenced by Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, and so that kind of that infusion of like seventies blues rock, it seems like the, that's that's the magic potion that created grunge the the you know what what if what if punk bands didn't hate classic rock what if they derived derived uh inspiration from it and when i was listening to hail hail now am i hearing things or is there some slide guitar going on in the background uh no i believe that is a a slide just in that uh kind of one little part yeah i i i really that that to me is indicative of the you know, as raw a song as this is, and as hard rocking as the song this is, there's still a moment in there of like '70s swamp blues, mm-hmm. like '70s classic rocks. You know, Alban Brothers swamp blues. That that to me is indicative of this this period of music that and the the kind of 
connections that they made as a band, you know, openly worshiping Neil Young and these icons of 70s rock, that they weren't afraid to drop in some slide guitar on this uh, otherwise pretty directly rocking song. And then the slide comes back later on in the album. Oh, does it? Oh, that's cool. Oh, and I like the outro of this, too, that the as the guitars just kind of hit that little arpeggiated figure and just kind of, you know, one by one sort of fade out. I think that's a considering that it's a song about not knowing where to go from here. That's a, a perfect, a perfect yeah. conclusion that they just kind yeah, of you walk off into the sunset, just kind of, yeah, clink, clinking along against each other. It doesn't come to like a definitive uh, big uh, cadence. It's just this kind of little figure of the two guitars sort of beautifully actually playing against each other. Oh, and if anyone wa- listens to this and watches the uh, the Hail Hail performance from from Letterman, which I believe is available in various places online, um, pay close attention to the outfit that Stone Gossard is wearing because um, he's making some kind of statement. I'm not sure what it is, <laughs> but uh, it's real colorful. Um, I, I got to give him uh, I got to give him points for that. He's like, how can I possibly stand out in this performance? Oh, I know. I'll wear the brightest colors ever seen on American television. <laughs> it is a truly great, a truly great performance. And and you've been a truly great guest. See how that all wraps up together. <laughs> hey, thanks a lot, man. Oh yeah, no problem. Is there? Uh, do you have uh, social media or anything? Upcoming projects or stuff that you want to shout out or promote or anything? Uh, I am at Joel A. Bacher on Twitter. I don't tweet very much, um, but when I do, it's usually something related to libraries. Uh, I'm a library technician, um, working my way to hopefully become an actual librarian at some point or another. Got my MLS last year. Hell yeah. Thanks, sir. Uh, also, Joel A. Bacher on Instagram, mostly pictures of my cat. Um, so if you like cats, by all means, follow me. Um, I am working on getting a podcast together uh, for a uh, mutual acquaintance of ours, Darren Husted, who does the Track by Track podcast for, um, he's covered Prince and Stevie Wonder. Uh, and I've taken on the somewhat daunting task of going track by track through Captain Beefheart's Trout Mask replica. Uh, so I'm going, hopefully going to be starting recording that in the next month or so to be released at some point later this year. So if you have any interest in Captain Beefheart uh, or music of that era, or you've even never heard it and kind of want to know what the buzz is about this kind of infamous album, uh, I hope to do it justice. Well, you can't do any worse than me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I would not say that, man. Yeah, I would not say that at all. Uh, the The depths to which I could potentially sink are are virtually limitless. Oh, that's it. I, that, that, that's 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 some of my my nineties irony, self deprecating, you know, authenticity. Trying to put that in there, man. That's where I'm coming from. <laughs> I, I I get that. Believe me, I get that. Self deprecation is is my. I had to do some job interviews recently. And, oh yeah. And it is, it is the weirdest feeling actually having to say positive things about yourself. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I'm used to just going, you know, if you go into an interview and you're like, yeah, I'm kind of crap, really. You know, that, that would be my usual MO, but it's unlikely to get me the job. Yeah, and usually it's like, uh, no, I, I, you you do do really good, but you have your a, a, a little tilted, slanted uh, expectation of yourself. It's like, ah, oh, man. I I can I could do better, but I am doing really good. But I want to be even better, so I don't think I'm that good. You see the gap between uh, all anyone else sees is what you're actually doing. You see the gap between what you're doing and what you intended on doing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking personally, at least. Oh no, yeah, I think that's that's the way it is for people who aren't megalomaniacs. <laughs> at least that's what I tell myself. Work, works for me. Is there uh, is there anything you think that people should do for someone else? Something nice that people should uh, go out into the world after they uh, after they heal this episode? Try to make the be nice to oh, people. That's a really good question. Um, maybe text, maybe contact a friend that you haven't talked to in a while. Ask how they're doing. Maybe uh, if you like some something that someone does, if you like their podcast, if you like their music, if you like their art whatever tell them um you don't necessarily have to be you know obnoxious about it but which <laughs> i have been the on those occasions i've met artists i admire i've been guilty of doing but you know just let them know that you appreciate what they do uh and uh go to your local library oh 
of course you got to do that libraries are great we got ebooks we got regular books we've got databases we've there's streaming movies there's dvds there's graphic novels libraries are uh invaluable cultural hubs of our current community damn right thanks for coming on joel this has been a real pleasure man thank you for having me The Better Band Podcast is produced by ListenUpRino.com and Brandon Palomo and published using a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 license. Please visit creativecommons.org or email listenupreno at gmail.com for more details. All music played is owned by the respective publishers and copyright holders and is reproduced for review purposes only under fair use. You can subscribe to the Better Band Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or from betterbandpod.com using your favorite podcast app. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Better Band Pod. I am on Twitter at Brandon P, B-R-A-N-D-E-N-P. If you like the job I'm doing here, you can go to ko-fi.com slash Brandon P and leave me a $3 tip or give me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to tell your friends. If you would like to be a guest on a future episode, send an email to betterbandpod at gmail.com or send any insights and stories you'd like to share and I'll read them on the season finale episode. Again, I'd like to thank my guest Joel and as always, this is Brandon saying, Woohoo! I'm a college man! I won't need my high school diploma anymore! <laughs>